Brothers and sisters, I'm excited to stand before you to teach the Word of God this Lord's Day. My excitement is tied to the honor that it is to teach God's Word, but not just in abstract, the honor of teaching God's Word, not just in abstract, but specifically the honor of teaching God's Word to Delray Church. And, 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 and even more narrowly, if I may, the honor of teaching God's Word to disciples in this church who are hungry to hear the Word of God, who, who come eager, who are, are ready to take note, who are ready to press it into their hearts. It is, it is an honor to be able to teach you, many of you from some years now, and to be able to watch your lives changing as a result of your, your hunger for the Word of God. Uh, with that, I'm, I'm excited today, not just in abstract to be a teacher of God's Word, not just uh, with regard to teaching you specifically as my heart is burdened for our, our church. I'm, I'm honored and I'm excited today because I'm going to be offering a new sermon series that I have entitled Faithful to Fulfill. Faithful to Fulfill, if you're taking notes, will be the title of this series. And this series will be not just a study of one topic. Sometimes we look at topics and we exposit God's word to look at a topic inside of scripture. It won't be a study of a topic. It won't be a study even of one book. Often we'll take a book of Scripture and we'll move through it. Most recently, our brother Brian Criscolo, shout out, give it up for Brian Criscolo, has been teaching us from Colossians, hasn't he? And it's been an edifying experience to be taught the Word of God and start in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 and move through. I'm excited today because this series, Faithful to Fulfill, will not just be one book, but we're actually going to be looking at six books of the sacred canon of Christ's church in this series. Now, all of these books are found within the Hebrew Bible, and they specifically cover the historical period that is known as the post-exilic era. Now, I'm going to survey the post-exilic era this morning. I'm going to look at some of the history and the figures and the concepts that lead up to it in just a few minutes to set the tone for what we will be doing in 2021 as we reflect on the character of God and his revelation in these six books and we look at this theme of his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. But by way of introduction for today's message, incidentally, today's message uh, that, that I've, I've titled it this, Out of the Ashes. So the series will be called Faithful to Fulfill. This message today is called Out of the Ashes. Let me set up this uh, title for today's message and then we'll get back into some context. Out of the Ashes is a phrase that we use for the phenomenon of something that was totally destroyed and laid waste. When something's been totally destroyed and laid waste and then it comes back to life, we, we, we use this phrase, out of the ashes. In ancient Greek folklore, the mythical phoenix was a bird that cyclically went out of existence and into existence, the, the mythical phoenix. It, it, it gives its life into flames. It's set on fire and then it moves into ashes. And then from those ashes in, in, in ancient mythology, the phoenix would come to life again. This ancient mythical creature inspired the modern tale in the Marvel comics of the Dark Phoenix saga for my comic book uh, nerds in the house and the Uncanny X-Men in the 1970s, uh, in the decade in which I was born. There was this character, Jean Grey, who the Phoenix possessed and, and came to life within Jean Grey. And I'm going to spare you the comic book survey here as well. I'll spare you this ancient Greek mythology of the Phoenix because I stand before you today to offer you something much better. 
to offer you today a, a story for you to hear about one who rose up on the ashes. And it's a better story because it's a real story. It's not a modern creative comic. It is not a, an ancient mythical uh, 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 story or fable. This is actual history, what I stand before you to teach today. Not just any old history, but it is biblical history. So with that said, of the six books that we will be surveying, the first one is Ezra. I need you to open your Bibles and find your way to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra is foundational for understanding the aforementioned post-exilic era in which a phoenix will rise. As you turn to the book of Ezra, let me give you some history. Spoiler alert here, the history is a sad history of God's promised people who have been reduced to the ashes. Hence today's title, Out of the Ashes. God's people have been reduced to the ashes. In the book of Ezra, we read about a phoenix that rises up out of the ashes. And first, I want to make sure that you understand about the fall of this metaphorical phoenix, as I'm referring to it. And by this metaphor, I'm speaking with regard to the promised people of God. So let's begin with the beginning of the promised people of God. The promised people of God, their beginning begins with a man. God promised the people and the people were formed. And that promise begins with a man. And so you need to understand who this man was. He was an undeserving and undesiring man. He wasn't a man who was running around looking for God. He was a, a, a man that God came to by grace. This man that I am referring to is the man Abram. He was from the pagan land of Ur. God chooses to bless him. Again, undesiring and undeserving. God comes to him. Now, now, not just this man, Abram, God chooses to bless, but God chooses to bless the whole world through this man, Abram. Now, to understand the history of this man, we need to get some backgrounds and, and, uh, to all of this. And so the very first point that I have for you, if you're trying to follow along and outline this morning, the first point is a point of preliminaries. You could uh, jot that down, preliminaries. We have some preliminaries to cover with regard to this man named Abram. And if we, if we want to understand who this man Abram is, we need to understand another man. That is the man Adam. This man, Adam, was the father of humanity. He is the father of mankind. And as the father of mankind, he is without a belly button. He, he was unborn, you see. He doesn't enter into the world the way that you and I entered into the world. He was brought into existence by divine creation. God made him. God formed him miraculously from matter and, and from him God formed a woman and joined them together in marriage to be the father and the mother of creation together bringing life and blessing to the earth. Together they bring this, this life and this blessing into the earth. Well, at least that was the design. That design, however, was forsaken. As I said a moment ago, spoiler alert, this is a sad story to set up the preliminaries here this morning. The, the man, Adam, and his wife rebelled against God. They turned on their creator. And the consequence of their rebellion ushered in death and dysfunction into the creation. Paradise was literally lost. Yet God graciously shielded them and the earth from the full weight of their sin, extending grace and promising them that one day in the future, he would, God would, as he is faithful, he would restore paradise and rescue people from the punishment of sin. That is the story of Adam. In comes the story of Abram. The promise of restoration moves from Adam to Abram, from Adam's bride to Abram's barren. Speaking of his wife, Sarah, together he, uh, Abram, and she, Sarah, are promised to become the father and mother of a promised people from the fallen children of Adam. Further, they are promised to become the heirs of a land that would become a paradise, listen, of milk and of honey, through which the people in that place, this new paradise, would usher in prosperity to the earth. 
This promise of the people in that place bringing prosperity is what we refer to as a covenant. Covenant is a word that simply means promise. Promise, a vow, vow, covenant, promise. God is faithful to fulfill this vow to the children of Abram. He makes Abram into Abraham. Abraham is a, is a name that means the father of many. So Abram, who is without child, becomes Abraham, the father of many, and, and his children go on to become the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, the nation of Israel. And God takes them, and God, God ordains them, and God anoints them. And they find themselves actually trapped at, at, at the very beginning stages of, of, of the beginning of all of this. They find themselves ensnared in slavery. They find themselves victims of social injustice, of ethnic oppression. There is a people on top of them that's pressing them down and crushing them. And then God comes as an abolitionist and builds an underground railroad through the great prophet Moses and rescues them. In this historic exodus, they are liberated Further than being liberated from social injustices, they are sanctified from their own sin within. And further, they are given a wondrous and a gracious gift from God, what we refer to as the Torah, the mitzvot, the commandments of God. There in that underground railroad, as they are rescued from this, this horrible oppression and this darkness, they are given Torah, mitzvot, commandments, law. And the promise that, that, that comes with this law is all about a preparation for them to be inside of this land. The Torah of Moses, the law, this was for the people. This was given to the people before they entered that land that was promised to their father Abram. And so that law is given to them as a part of sanctifying them and preparing them. Before you go in there, you need to have this. Before you enter into this, let me give you instructions so that you know how this is going to work. Now, if you're like me, I often order something online or whatever, and I open the box, and I toss the instructions, and I find myself just trying to put it together, only to be left with some pieces at the end like, ah, you know, let me go back. These are the instructions. Before you try to put this together, before you try to do this on your own, Torah, mitzvah, oath, commandments, law, that comes from Moses, that is for you as you enter into the land. Now, the law, the law carries with it divine power. And the law carries with it specifically divine power of blessing on the people that is conditioned upon their faithfulness. The promise that was made to Abram is unconditional. God says, I'm going to do this. Your people in that place will bring prosperity. I'm going to do this. Now, as they get to the land, God brings this conditional vow, this conditional covenant through Moses that says, I'm going to use this to prepare you. And as you lay before this as you obey this you will experience blessings as you do this it's conditioned you want these blessings you must you must come before the torah you must come under the torah now unbelievable blessings would actually flow literally from the heavens to the earth very literally the heavens were were to be opened up from the heavens into the earth in what is known as the tabernacle and what later will become the temple when they come into the land. God would literally open the heavens and manifest himself in the temple in the land. God's presence was manifested as a foretaste of the renewal of the paradise that was lost and the days when God dwelt among humanity, thinking of Adam, now to Abram, now to Abram's children with Moses. The imagery of paradise is coming back and the imagery of paradise is literally woven into their tabernacle, into their temple, into the land and into the Torah. The blessings, they're contingent though. You want to receive these blessings, you must obey. 
And further, they were prefaced with this Abrahamic covenant, which has no contingencies, as I have explained. It's unconditional. So God will bring Abraham's progeny to the place, and he's going to bless them. He will do that. But a long story short, the children of Abram behave like their father Adam, and they disobey God's command, the mitzvahot of the Torah. And in their disobedience, God remains faithful, though. Because he has providentially ordained to use his covenant with Abraham for his plan of redemption in the earth. Now speaking of the covenant and the father Abraham's children, God made another incredible covenant to the people that was also unconditional. And I have in mind here, once they are in the land, once the tabernacle turns to temple and God's manifesting his presence, this porthole from the heavens into the earth, as Israel raises up kings, there is a king named David and to him God covenants and promises that from his seed there will be one who will sit on his throne and will usher in an everlasting kingdom of prosperity to the ends of the earth. Undeserving of this Davidic covenant, this vow from God to David, this unconditional vow. Undeserving of this, in light of David's own disregard, not to mention the people's disregard for the Torah, God remains faithful. As well, he remains just and he holds them to the consequences of Torah rebellion. So instead of blessing, they justly receive its antithesis, cursing. They are fairly punished. I gave this to you to prepare you. These are the instructions. You have ignored them. Now you come under the consequence of this. And once again, paradise is lost. The land of milk and honey faces famine and bitterness. Rather than unity and oneness, sin creeps into the people and causes division and gossip and bitterness and breakdown. Rather than coming to their senses, through God's fatherly discipline of them, they pout like entitled, privileged, silver spoons who are not getting their way. We might say that the spirit of Karen was alive in ancient days, and instead of running to God in repentance or coming humbly in community for help from their spiritual leaders, they demand to speak to a manager. The only problem is, God is the manager. The other problem is, the Torah is the enforcement of God's law, and you have stood against it. And, it, and, and instead of backing down, they still insist to speak to a manager. They still insist that it's not their problem. They still insist that it's so-and-so and such-and-such. The people dig in their heels and they hit rock bottom. And in a series of divine judgments, God uses foreign powers to punish them. The Assyrian Empire comes in and wipes out the north of Israel around the 700s B.C., this does not wake up the remnant of the people. As a, as a result, the, 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 the people in the south that were left, Assyria comes in and wipes out the north, the people in the south that were left, in the 500s, the Babylonian empire comes in and puts the beat down on those who are remaining in the south. Those they did not murder, those they did not beat down were exiled, and this Babylonian exile lasts for up to 70 years. These decades were grueling and gruesome. The father's discipline of his covenantal children, let me remind you as we're talking about preliminaries here, the, the father's discipline is, is fair, it's loving. The consequences of rebellion against God is death. He could, he could have ended it all there and yet he is patient and he is bringing discipline upon them only to, only to begin to rise up the phoenix as we will see. They lost everything, they deserved it. The presence of God inside of the land and the temple, the beautiful imagery of paradise, all of it was destroyed and they deserved it. They lost their homes. More importantly, their families were pulled apart. Their sons were enslaved. Their daughters were, well, their children here, tortured and tormented they were. 
And for, for others who managed to escape some of these conditions, they were able to assimilate into the culture of their oppressor and just move on with life in Babylon. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah instructed the exiles to sow roots in their new communities, to build homes, to plant gardens, to raise godly families. Jeremiah chapter 29, let me quote it to you. The prophet says, seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. In fact, Jeremiah went on to say, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will, God says, visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back into this place. The promise may have been forgotten with the children of Abram, but the promise was not forgotten with God. The generation after immigration had settled in and assimilated into the culture, so much so that they had forgotten their, their, their own culture, their own history, even their own language. The people speak Hebrew. Now they have lost the ability, as we will see in this series, even to read their own scriptures. They have walked away not only from language and culture and history, but even their own identity, spiritually speaking. They began to assimilate into Babylon and to worship the gods of Babylon. They have forgotten who their God was and this whole promise that was given to Abram and, and to Moses and to David. But God did not forget. God never forgets. Amen. Faithful to fulfill his word through the prophet Jeremiah, God brings the people back. This takes place in three broad migrations. Three broad migrations. First, under Zerubbabel. Second, under Ezra. And third, under Nehemiah. And this is why I ask you to turn to the book of Ezra, because we are going to begin this account and look at this. And this is why I'm giving you this, this background, these preliminaries, so that as we jump into the text of Ezra, you have the context in mind. We've moved from Adam to Abram to ashes, and now a phoenix, Israel, is going to be rising. It is worth noting that the book of Ezra was originally joined to the book of Nehemiah. The, the, the book in our Bible that comes right after it, Ezra, Nehemiah, or as we say, Nehemiah. The ancient Hebrews treated those two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, as Ezra, Nehemiah, as one book. They were one book. It was their, uh, their Brangelina, their Benefer, their Tomcat, their Kimye, right? They were, they, were, they were joined together. Ezra, Nehemiah was one book, but eventually it was broken into two just like Kimye, I guess, recently in the news, right? And we read about, you know, Kim's filing for divorce and Kanye. We think about how things get torn apart. But anyway, through, through, though Ezra and Nehemiah are separate books, historically speaking, we know that they belong together, and hence that's why I'm saying this survey series is going to look at six books, because these six books actually all belong together. You don't want to just study one and move on to another book. You need to understand how all these books fit together, and so that's what I'm going to be attempting to do. Now, if you have an outline, you will see what I have surveyed for you on the back side of it with regard to the movement of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. In fact, there's a little graph on the outline that, that shows you these migrations with dates and references to, post, to, to post-exilic texts inside of the Bible, specifically to books of prophecy. The prophets that we will be studying in this, in this series are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So as I said, we're, we're going to be looking at six books. We'll look at Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, which comes in this time, and we will be looking at the prophets of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The historical narratives of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah give us just that, the historical narrative, and then those prophets speak on top of those to let us know from divine perspective what's going on. So today we're entering into Ezra. I hope you're excited. And as we get into Ezra, we're going to see a phoenix is rising on the ashes of fallen Israel. The ruins of the holy city of Jerusalem should be in our minds. And then we open into Ezra. 
and the ruins and the ashes begin to come back to life. The echoes and the screams from exile are in the background. If you listen, you hear the screams of their children. You hear the sounds and, and smells of things burning in the background. And then into the foreground comes God in his faithfulness to fulfill. The unconditional covenants are proven to be just that unconditional. Flashes are bursting from the ashes and Israel will rise as a phoenix. In Ezra chapter 1, the children of Israel, uh, of Israel are in exile. They, they, they are now given the green light to go home in Ezra 1. That's what we're studying this morning. The text of Ezra wants the reader to know that this return to home, this phoenix rising, is not just history, but it's actually prophecy. And so now we move from preliminaries into the points of today's outline. And the first point, if you're outlining this in terms of taking notes, the first point is prophecy. Prophecy speaks to history. Prophecy speaks both to present history and to future history. Prophecy both foretells in the present, it foretells in the present, and it foretells in the future. In terms of history and the present, at the present of Ezra, when the phoenix is rising and the people are returning home, it is happening at the same time. This book that you have open to, historical perspective here, is happening at the same time as the Buddha is in India. It is happening at the same time as, the, as Confucius is in China. This is happening at the same time that Socrates is in Greece. So that gives you an idea of what's going on in the world as, as this is taking place, as God is on the move in human history. And what you need to know is this is not human history. This is not happenstance. This is happening by the power of God. Look at the text, chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. So it sounds like history, but you're going to see soon that this this history here is actually a matter of prophecy. We need to pause. i got to explain. That's the whole point of teaching. So let's just pause. What's going on here as verse 1 opens? Who is this guy? Cyrus. We have a Cyrus in our, in our church, you know. Do you know who you are named after, right? Who is this guy? Well, we're going to study him this morning. I, I shared with you a bit about some figures, Adam and Abram. They're important to understanding the storyline. I shared with you about Israel. I shared with you about Assyria in the north and Babylon in the south. You've got to have all this background if you're going to understand this. So, so who is this guy? Cyrus. Okay, just before him is Babylon. We looked at that history. Babylon was the superpower who colonized the lands and imposed its culture and power upon the people. That said, history teaches us that empires come and empires go. Along with empires coming and going, a blind nationalistic idolatry of people who defend their empires at all costs also come to an end. Well, speaking of the very end, Babylon came to an end. Like Israel, Babylon was judged by God. God used Babylon to bring his discipline and then God judged Babylon. Unlike Israel, however, Babylon is not in covenant with God. You have no promise from God, Babylon. So bye-bye Babylon. Time to go, Felicia. There's a new power in town. It's the Medo-Persian Empire, and that brings in Cyrus. Cyrus puts the beat down on Babylon. So, Cyrus, you were named after someone who put the beat down on Babylon. Put the beat down on the mighty Nebuchadnezzar. So, farewell, Nebuchadnezzar. Sayonara. Peace out. Audi 5000. We have a new sheriff in town, and his name is Cyrus. Now, in the ancient world, time was marked by its rulers. If I said in the year of Lincoln, or the year of Roosevelt, or Carter, or Reagan, or Obama, or Trump, or Biden, or whatever... You, you immediately are able to kind of go, okay, what, what was going on in that era? You, you have things that come to mind. That sort of accounting around rulers is something that we do even before we're aware of rulers. Even in our culture, when I was a kid, we, we took accounting by time with regard to our teachers and our principals in our school. You know, if, if someone 
uh, you ran into years later. I mean, this happens to me a lot. I might run into someone when we start talking. Oh, where did you go to school? Oh, I went to parent. Oh, I went to parent too. When were you at parent? I don't give the dates. I say I was there when, when Miss Strickland was there. They were like, oh, dang, you're old. <laughs> you know? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm old. I was there when Miss Strickland was there. Miss Strickland is long gone. She's passed on. Uh, but, but in any case, you, you keep reference to time by markers, such as, as persons. You, you might do this, uh, you know, even, even with work. You might work at a company. You run into someone else who worked at that company. Companies that I've worked for, I meet people. Oh, I worked there. Oh, were you there when so-and-so was there? Ezra's doing the same. Here's the so-and-so, Cyrus. All of this is going on in the reign of Cyrus. So what, what, what's going on with Cyrus? You need to know if you're going to understand the book. Well, Cyrus, Cyrus II, Cyrus the Great, as he is known, he is the head of the Achaemenid Empire. The Achaemenid Empire becomes the first Persian Empire, so we refer to him as the head of the Persian Empire. He is kicking butt and taking names around 600 to 530. That's a simple way of looking at it. He takes over Mesopotamia and more. He, 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 his rule goes from the Balkans in Eastern Europe in, in the West to the Indus Valley into the East. It was larger than any previous empire in history, spanning 2.1 million square miles. He is balling out of control. And his so-called success is not his doing. It was, it was credited to the creator. Look back at the text, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, now you have some context, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation through all the kingdom and also put it in writing, saying. Now, verse 1 is telling us that all of this is God's doing. Everything that is happening is to fulfill his will. And the fulfillment is fueled by God's power. Notice in the text it says, the Lord stirred. God empowered his prophecy. Verse 1 speaks about Jeremiah. I've already referenced Jeremiah to you, the prophecy of the 70 years. Jeremiah 25, verses 11 through 12. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. The prophecy serves to document this divine power that I've made mention of, the divine providence of God. How is all of this happening? By God's divine providence and by God's divine power. Along with the prophet Jeremiah, there's the prophet Isaiah. Write this down in your notes. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, the prophet explicitly names Cyrus. So Cyrus, your name is in the prophet Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. Your name is in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. But Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, there is a prophet, Isaiah, a Hebrew prophet, Isaiah, who explicitly names Cyrus, and he says that God used Cyrus to, and I quote Isaiah 45, to subdue the nations before him. I quote the prophet Isaiah, he went on to say, to open the doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. Now, now write this down as well. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. First world problems, we don't have PowerPoint, but you know, we can write things down like ancients. Isaiah 44, verse 28. Now in Isaiah 44, verse 28, Cyrus is also named. And the prophet Isaiah foresees that, that, that he will bring Israel home from exile. Isaiah says in Isaiah 44, and I quote, He declares of Jerusalem, He will build, and the temple and your foundation will be laid, end quote. Elsewhere in Isaiah's prophecy, again, sorry, I don't have PowerPoint, but you can write it down, Cyrus is referred to. Isaiah 41, verse 2, Isaiah 41, verse 25, Isaiah 45, verse 18. Hearing this, if you know ancient history, if you know biblical chronology, 
hearing that Isaiah is talking about Cyrus and being in Ezra reading about Cyrus, if you know biblical chronology and you know history, you should say, whoa. Wait, 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 Pastor Matt, you said Isaiah said Cyrus? We're in Ezra though. What, what, what Isaiah, again, if you know history and biblical chronology, Isaiah comes 200 years before Cyrus. How does he know about him? He doesn't just know about him to refer to him ambiguously, but he actually calls him by name. How does he know 200 years in advance this guy's name? How does Jeremiah know in advance that they're going to go into exile for specifically 70 years? How do they know this? This shows us that God holds history in his hand. Amen? Amen. He holds history in his, in his hands, church. In fact, he holds it so tightly that this prophecy triggers skeptics. Skeptics of the Bible, they look at this prophecy, in particular Isaiah, and they say, well, Isaiah could not have written this. They say, well, why couldn't Isaiah have written this? Well, because it happens 200 years beforehand, and we all know that people don't know the future. Say, yeah, yeah, but like God does, and God ordains the future, and God is the author of the text. We need not rip the text apart into Isaiah and Deutero-Isaiah and Trito-Isaiah and come up with all these fancy ways around it. Haters are going to hate. The fact of the matter is the evidence is before us. God says 200 years in advance, let me tell you about Cyrus. Let me spoil this movie for you guys. Cyrus is coming. You are going to go into exile. It's going to be 70 years. And he tells you that hundreds of years in advance. God holds history in his hands. This ought to be a comfort to us this morning especially in a time where we find ourselves like 2021, in a time where nationally, culturally, there is so much tension going on, where the times just seem to be doing their own thing. We need to be reminded that God is in control. Israel had been completely wiped out, and God is saying, look, so if we think we have it rough, first world problems or whatever, let Ezra put it in perspective. That is not to minimize the things that we are going through. I think in particular this week, as I've been watching the news, and just thinking about the history of, of, of talking about just natu- nat- national turmoil in the culture, thinking about the history of racism in our country, in particular uh, this week looking at the troubling rise of hate crimes against Asian Americans. I don't know if you've been following this. One story in particular comes to mind. There was an 84-year-old Asian man, and it comes to mind because it happened in California this year. He was just walking down the street, going on his morning walk when a 19-year-old slammed him against the ground, and he was never to awake again. In this COVID context where we have this, this, this racial hate that comes out and gets targeted against people groups, there, are, there are, are, are people in this and they're going, we're afraid. We're afraid to go walk because someone might kill us. We're afraid to go out in the streets. We, we, we see that. We see the confusion. We see the hurt. We see the uncertainty. And a lot of it at the end of the day, uh, it boils down to people putting their trust in the earth instead of the heaven. And at the end of the day, it boils down to sin and brokenness. Indeed, our world is broken. This point was very glaringly true this week in the news as we witnessed Richard Levin, who is the new president's nominee for Assistant Secretary of Health, Richard Levin. He was in the news in confirmation hearings this week. Now, you might say, Richard, I didn't hear about Richard. Yeah, Richard no longer calls himself Richard. He calls himself Rachel. Not to mention, he no longer calls himself he, but a she. And my point about brokenness and confusion is illustrated just in in this (laughs) illustration that we have a he who thinks he is a she and we have a president promoting a man who thinks he is a woman, not to mention who disregards basic science of gender and sex, who should be specifically in charge of health. 
You're going to be in charge of health and something as, as simple as gender and sex are confused. Now concerning health, the committee questioned him this week, and if you watch the news, maybe you saw this, and, and specifically there was a medical doctor on the committee who questioned him with regard to genital mutilation of minors and chemical experiments on minors, and those questions were entirely dodged. Mind you, Rachel or Richard is a medical doctor by training, a pediatrician. When a pediatrician is confused about the butchering of the genitals of children and youth in our culture, it illustrates what I'm trying to say, that our world is broken. Not to mention the ongoing matter of abortion in our country, when those who know better, those who know when life begins, those who know when life begins and know the science become science deniers and conspiratists, the very things that they pride themselves not to be. And they stand by while the innocent are murdered. I take that back, they don't stand by, they actually participate in it. Forgive me. And they legislate it. And the legislation is coming. Which is why I never vote for people or parties who are anti-life. It's chaos. We watch the news, it's chaos. And you come to church on Sunday, and you don't need to hear about the news. What you need to hear about, I'm only using the news for an illustration, you need to hear about Ezra, and you need to hear about how God is in control, and you need to hear about wicked people come and wicked people go, and empires fall, bye-bye empires, but God is in control of it all. We need, to, we need to pick up the word of God and maybe watch a little less news and be reminded of this. In Ezra 1, we see God's not caught off guard by any of this. God is actually using the evil for good. In Isaiah 44, verse 28, as the prophet was prophesying about those very days that would come, in Isaiah 44, verse 28, I'll quote it for you since we don't have PowerPoint. It says, it is I who says of Cyrus, this is God speaking, Cyrus is, God says, my shepherd, and Cyrus will perform all of my desire. Cyrus is not acting independently. He is doing God's desire. God calls Cyrus my shepherd. He's mine. That's my guy. We need to be reminded of this as well as we watch politics. We put our hope in politicians and parties and all the rest. Look, God's in control of this. So if we think that Fauci or whoever is somehow, you know, <laughs> ruining things. You got to be reminded, look, look, God's using this and I don't know what he's using it for. I know that one day I will know, but I don't know. I don't have a word from Isaiah, but by golly, Ezra has a word from Isaiah and he says, Cyrus is my shepherd. The same way that a shepherd brings a herd to pasture, so too Cyrus will bring the flock of Israel to pasture in the promised land. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse one, God says of Cyrus, he's my anointed. God calls Cyrus anointed. Now, ordinarily, inside of the Hebrew scriptures, the anointed is, is, is referred to a priest or an Israelite leader, a king, or even a Messiah. He's anointed, Isaiah. Cyrus is anointed. Wicked Cyrus is anointed. Yeah, he's anointed. Specifically for God's task of bringing his people back to the land, God is using a pagan empire and a pagan emperor to release his servant Israel. It is worth noting that scholars spill a lot of ink over, over uh, the phrase 70 years here. It is worth noting that specifically, depending on where you start these dates and what have you, in comes the aforementioned haters who are going to hate and try and attack the Bible or whatever. In terms of an exact measurement, uh, if you're using a Jewish lunisolar calendar or, or a modern calendar, we could really get sidetracked talking about this, but very succinctly, this is corroborated by prophecy. It is a period of time, a period of 70, and God brings them back into the land. So the text begins with this prophecy. And verse 2 through 4 brings us to the next point. It is a point of proclamation. 
Again, by review, we've looked at preliminaries. Now we're looking at points. Our first point was about prophecy. Our second point is about proclamation. Look at the text, verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus issues a proclamation. It is worth noting that we know from history uh, that the postal system of this time was very effective. So when he issues a proclamation, it actually gets out. The governmental messaging was very effective in that day. Herodotus, who, who writes around the 400s BC, he's an ancient Greek historian who was born in the Persian Empire, and so he understands uh, things. Herodotus wrote a, a wonderful book that you can read called The Histories. And in The Histories, he actually writes about the effectiveness of the Persian Empire in decimating, uh, getting out, uh, disseminating uh, information. If I had a PowerPoint, I'd show you the big long slide of this or whatever. But there's this great quote in the histories in, in 898, if you want to look it up later. And Cyrus talks about, how, you know, he talks about how effective Cyrus and the Persians were in getting word out. Cyrus uses the Pony Express of his day to get this proclamation out that we're reading in verse 2. I mean, it's faster than Amazon. Okay, maybe not Amazon, right? Uh, it's definitely faster than the U.S. Postal Service, right? Uh, but that, I mean, that's not saying much. It's faster than the DMV. Well, that's not saying much either. But seriously, let me remind you. The proclamation, it's getting out into the empire. And the proclamation, let me remind you, is on the lips of a pagan king. But as we read the text, we're going to see something interesting, that the pagan king is giving credit to the God of heaven. Didn't you see that in verse 2? The Lord, the God of heaven. It is he who has given me the kingdoms of the earth, he says. Now, of course, kingdoms of the earth, that's hyperbolic language. Uh, Cyrus didn't rule the earth. He didn't rule China. He didn't rule the Americas. It's hyperbolic, all the earth. Uh, in fact, it might not be hyperbolic, uh, incidentally, because the word that he uses is the Hebrew word eretz, which could mean land or region. So it might just sound hyperbolic in our contemporary English. Uh, but anyway, Cyrus is the king, and he has a vast empire. I've already shared with you its dimensions. It's enormous. His rule was infamous. He was a military leader who conquered Babylon, as we've covered, a political figure who took over lands and people, and as he did it, he assimilated them into his empire. Now, speaking of the empire, in the late 1800s, archaeologists discovered in Iraq what is known as the Cyrus Cylinder. Write this down, the Cyrus Cylinder. The Cyrus Cylinder dates back to the 6th century, around the 530s or so, I've seen it with my own hands, in fact. It's currently held in London. It's a, it's a wonderful piece of history to see. It is amazing clay barrel-shaped tube that's about nine inches long, and in the middle at its maximum diameter, it's around four inches. So if you imagine, whatever, a toilet paper roll, it's about that size. And the artifact is filled with writing. So as you roll it like a toilet paper roll, it, it actually has a message on it. And in this message, Cyrus, in the sands of time, is proclaimed to be quoting from the cylinder, allowed for the kingship over all of everything, it says. And about midway into the cylinder, as you're rolling and reading, the text moves into the first person, into a monologue of Cyrus, directly speaking to the reader of the cylinder. And in the monologue, the cylinder says, and I quote, I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, powerful king. And it keeps going on about how he's king over this and king over that and king over this guy and king over that. And then he calls himself, and I quote, the perpetual seed of kingship. It's very similar to what we're reading here in verse 2 and the way that it starts. It, it starts in the third person, you see that in the text, and then it moves to the first person, you see that in the text. And we read Cyrus boasting of all of his kingdoms, among all of his territories, and all of the land is the holy city of Jerusalem. And he believes in the God of heaven, the text says, and he believes that he's going to build a temple there, the text says. And so what does he do? Keep reading verse 3. 
Whoever there is among you and all of the people, may his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So what does Cyrus do? The pagan king sends the promised people to build a temple in the promised land. And at first glance, that might sound like, well, maybe, maybe Cyrus isn't a pagan. Maybe he's not a pagan. Maybe he's a closet believer. But upon further exegetical examination, we see that is not the case. In verse 2, we see that Cyrus speaks of the God of heaven. But then in verse 3, we see that he speaks of the God of Israel. He doesn't think they're the same. Keep in mind, this culture is polytheistic. They believe in lots of gods. They got a lot of gods, and it's, uh, it's a spiritual game of hedging bets. Now, to hedge a bet, of course, is a way of reducing one's risk and increasing one's chance of winning. And in this case, it is winning the afterlife and all sorts of accoutrements that go on in the afterlife. Along with hedging bets with the gods in the afterlife is increasing your chances of, of sort of getting this right God so that in this life you get certain blessings. The pagan religions entail this scratching of the gods back in order to get your back scratched back. And along with the, the spiritual benefits of sort of hedging on which God you worship in which particular territory, there is a political hedging that takes place in the ancient world around religion. They, they, they use religion in the, in the ancient days. I know this sounds crazy, but they actually used religion back then for political gain. Sounds crazy, right? Now, we mustn't act uppity because uh, we, we know exactly that that still goes on today. We have politicians in our culture who use religion for votes, for position, for power. The methods of Cyrus are still with us. I could say things right now that would trigger people on the left. I could say things right now that would trigger people on the right. I could give examples from the right of how they use religion to, to get things. I could use examples on the left of how they use religion to get things, and it would trigger folks. And that, in fact, is what has made the pandemic so hard. Folks are so easily triggered and so easily divided and ever so opinionated about things. And those opinions then get spiritualized and weaponized by religion. And in the case of the church, or rather in the case of those professing Christ, it adds darkness to the darkness, confusion to the confused. Is this the Jesus that you believe in, Matt? Hey, Matt, is this the Jesus? Are, is, this, is this what you represent? These are the questions that my friends who don't know the Lord have been asking me in 2021. With the storming of the Capitol, watching the news, my unbelieving friends, they, they want to know, I'm watching the news, Matt. I see people in the crowds and they got Jesus signs. Is that your Jesus? And at the end of the day, people will do funny things in the names of gods and political powers, and they'll use the names of gods for various agendas. We currently have a president who self-identifies as a Catholic and yet is advancing some of the most anti-Catholic, not to mention anti-life propaganda that this country has ever seen. Commentators note that even the polls show that among his constituents, uh, the so-called pro-choice, they're, they're not even as radical as our, our current president is. And not, and not just in this, I mean, we, we see like our dollars being used in this nation to fund the murders of babies overseas and, and the vow to codify Roe versus Wade. And yet when you're on the platform, you use religion. I'm a, I'm a Catholic, but you push legislation that goes against the church you claim to represent. The exercise of religion and liberty and justice more broadly, those are things that go against the very things that are said among the politicians of our day. And again, I might have triggered some. And again, I could have used a, a different example than I might have triggered others. But we look at the text, and what I need you to see is that Cyrus, 
speaks of the God who is in Jerusalem. He is using the God of Jerusalem for sordid gain. He speaks of the God of heaven. He speaks of the God of Jerusalem. The Cyrus Cylinder that I've been quoting to you, in the Cyrus Cylinder, we, we read him referencing other gods. He, he mentions the god Marduk. Marduk is the patron deity of Babylon. I've already shared with you about Babylon. You can read about their patron deity, Marduk, incidentally, in the ancient piece of literature known as the Enuma Elish, which is a Babylonian creation myth document where Marduk becomes the ruler of the gods. And again, you see religion. Again, you see spirituality woven together. The belief in the gods, plural, is the worldview of Cyrus. And he co-ops those who he oppresses and overcomes and takes their gods to use them for his gain. Now, now the people of Israel, they are not polytheists. They are monotheists. They believe in one God. And as this one God has been faithful to reveal himself to the people of Israel, he reveals himself not only of the God of Abram and the God of Moses and the God of David, but the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ, the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, the historical Jesus of Nazareth, who is the eternal Son, one with the Father and Spirit, who has come into the flesh to die for humanity in order to atone for the sins of his people. The pagans, they have lots of gods. The people of Israel only have one. The pagans have lots of gods, and all of them are monads. That is, they are one person and one being. The people of Israel, the God revealed in Christ, is one God in three persons. The pagan gods are not triune, and so what we are dealing with here in the text are different gods. The God of Israel is an exclusive God. Thou shalt have no other gods besides me. He is the God revealed in Christ. He is the God we need to handle the brokenness of, of our day. He is, the, he is the God who offends everyone's sensibilities because he calls us all sinners and tells us without him we will perish and we deserve it because we, as children of Adam and Eve, have rebelled against our Creator. And there is not a person who can say they have obeyed the law of God perfectly. And as the history of Israel shows us, even God's own promised people can't obey the law. And here comes one who obeys the law perfectly in order to exchange himself, the innocent and the righteous one, to take our guilt upon himself and to give us his righteousness and his perfect record. This is who we celebrate today. This is who the church must not tolerate, is never preached in a sermon in such a time like this, where we see pulpits have become distracted by so many other things. Church, you have come here today to hear about the triune God who is revealed in Christ, and without the Christ, you would be hopelessly lost. You have come to hear this ancient text tied to him. I mentioned that Isaiah prophesied about Cyrus. Oh, Isaiah prophesied about the servant who would suffer for us. Speaking of Cyrus in Isaiah 45, verse 4, the, 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 the prophet says that Cyrus was not a believer. You have not known me, Isaiah 45, verse 4 says. So what we're reading here in Ezra 1 is pagan and political. It's, it's spiritual and it's governmental. When Cyrus took over the area and he took over a people, he enveloped them in and he took their regional god and he used that for political power and agenda. We have to understand that in the ancient world, religion and region were woven together. The question wasn't, do you believe in God? The question in the ancient world was, what God do you believe in? There was no such thing as atheism in the ancient world. In fact, for all of human history, I mean, atheism is a Johnny-come-lately. It's, a, it's a, a modern Western phenomenon. In fact, more specifically, it's a white, modern, European phenomenon that spread through 
uh, Anglo-Europe into North America, into Asia, and into places where there are cultural and political forces that will use even atheism for its, its own gain. That said, atheism is actually not a matter of do you believe in God, because for atheism it has become, in our day, its own religion. It has its own God, the God of self and subjective reason the god of philosophical naturalism. And while atheists love to attack religion, they fail to see that they actually constitute a religion. While atheists love to pride themselves as being apolitical, oh, they are heavily political. The Chinese government, have you heard of them? Yeah, they're atheists. The Communist Party, yeah, yeah, they're atheists, you see, they're political. Over the last 100 years, we've seen Mussolini, Pol Pot, Mao, Stalin, Kim Jong-un, Hirohito, all atheists. And they all, they all use the government as their god, ushering in socialism, communism as their doctrines to endorse their gods and call the people into worship of the self and the subjective. Over a quarter of a billion people were killed as a result of this religion. And on this note, it is worth mentioning for something of purposes of equipping you for defending the faith that has been entrusted to the church of the triune God revealed in Christ, our faith is often attacked by straw mans with regard to history about what Christians have done. You call yourselves Christians. I mean, look at you. I mean, look at what about the Crusades? What about this? What about that? And in all of those instances, we can say those are Christians not acting like Christ. But with regard to other religions, we can say, those are people acting consistent with their founders. I have in mind here Muhammad. Muhammad carried a sword. It is a matter of historical fact. Muhammad carried a sword. Muhammad was a polygamist. Among his wives included children, in fact. This is a, a pedophile who carries a sword who, made, who, who wages war against people. It is com this is a common fact. I'm not pulling this out, out of the proverbial hat here. He's a military leader. This is such a common fact that there's even a Wikipedia entry for military career of Muhammad. He's a guy who killed hundreds of people. He's a guy who slaughtered people. He carried a sword. So if you see instances of that, like 9-11, and people say, well, you know, they weren't true. You go, mm, but they were acting like their founder. Now in instances like crusades, or maybe even what happened at the Capitol, if people are carrying Jesus signs and beating up police officers or whatever, you'd say, well, they're not acting like Christ. Muhammad carried a sword. Christ carried a cross. Christ carried a cross, and he died at the hands of his enemy. He turned the cheek for them. He cried out, Father, forgive them. He didn't wage any war. He, he wasn't a polygamist. He wasn't running around getting married and doing whatever because he has a bride, beloved, and you are his bride. You are his body. He went to the cross for you. He died for you. And furthermore, he has risen from the grave. Cyrus is dead. Muhammad is dead. Confucius is dead. Brigham Young, dead. Joseph Smith, dead. Charles Taz Russell, dead. Jesus is alive. He's not co-opting regions and using regional gods or whatever. He's grabbing hearts so that all around the world today, there are people who worship him, people changed by him, people transformed by him, and people who are discerningly watching where God has placed them in the world to see the co-opting of religion to be used for sordid gain. That's what Cyrus does. He co-ops the gods. People are generally polytheists in their day, and so that works really easily. You know, they're, they're happy. Whatever. Throw another God in there. You know, we're just having fun. Oh, you took over another people group. Throw their God in there. Because again, it just sort of hedges our bets. Maybe their God's got more powers over the weather, more powers over the economy or whatever. Let's do this. And so he takes over the Jews. 
He takes over the Hebrews. He says, oh, you guys have that God and you have that temple and all that. Why don't you guys go do that? Verse 4, every survivor at whatever place that he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of that God, for the house of that God over there in Jerusalem. Let's do this. Oh, man, he gained a whole lot of political power that day. You see, the Jewish people had a lot of pull. The, the Jewish people had been through a lot. And by pulling them in that way, that is going to give him certain political power within his massive empire, this Medo-Persian empire. If they were going to rebuild what, what was lost, though, if the phoenix was going to rise from those ashes, it was going to cost a ton of money. This is a reminder to us today that, that, while, that, that while salvation is the free gift of God in Christ, that while Christ died for us, while Christ gave his life for us, while, while Christ doesn't ask us to do in order to get his benefits, he gives them to us freely, that while salvation is by his grace, it is free, that worship actually involves sacrifice. It costs to come and worship. On a superficial note, right? Getting your kids dressed for those of your parents. Ah, getting them fed, getting them, getting them here, getting them here. You know, even if you're single, there's other stuff you could be doing this morning. We're driving in the car this morning with my kids and, you know, we're, we're just having this conversation. Some of my kids are going, people are walking their dogs. They don't go to church, you know. What would we do if we weren't going to church, Dad? Uh, you know, I'm like, well, uh, lots of things, right? There's other stuff that you could be doing instead of being here. That, that's just superficial. That's just sort of what you do with your time. But if you're really worshiping God, it's going to cost you. Long before the exile, long before the exile, when they lived in the land of promise, it cost them to worship the God of Israel. You had to make pilgrimages to the temple. It was costly. It was time consuming. It was hard. You would take weeks off of work to journey to the temple where sacrifice was made. And every week there's Shabbat, there's Sabbath, where you're supposed to take off of work. And that, that, that costs you. Again, for us, it's just closed on Sunday. You're my Chick-fil-A. You know, it's sort of fun for the kids in the car. But, like, it costs to close down. To, to, it costs this offering we're reading about in verse 4. And yet, listen, God is worthy of it all. I fear this is something that has been lost in uh, the North American context in the West as consumerism has infected the worship of the people of God. In 2004, there was a very interesting book that came out by Gary Guiley, and the title of the book was, This Little Church Went to the Market. The subtitle is The Church in the Age of Entertainment. And the authors look at this. Other historians of North America have looked at this for 100 years now. We've seen the watering down of the faith in the church today. Churches have been reduced to amenities and programs and goods and services, even brands. There's a, a fancy and a slick marketing, even a catering. Worship services are treated like shows, like concerts. Sermons are viewed like TV and listened to like a mere lecture or treated as such. They're critiqued like films or foods. People actually yelp about it. And before yelp and even after yelp, people talk about it. It's the modern phenomenon that comes in with the rise of consumerism. The church is reduced to a place to attend and consume rather than a place of communion, a place of giving, a place of putting others first. And, and what is consumed and what, if, what is craved in this context is not doctrine and gospel and communion and biblically mandated things. It's other things, spiritual commodities and comforts, politics even, politics even. I love that this era of post-exile that we're studying, I love it 
because they lost everything and they had to focus on essentials. In fact, in this era of post-exile, they've lost their temple. They've lost the place of worship. It's gone. You know, I say, we've lost ours too. Oh, wait, uh, you know, come on. <laughs> they lost it. It's in ashes. Ours is just right there. It's a matter of time. We'll get back in there. But they lost it. It's gone. It's gone. They lost everything. Homes, everything. They lost everything. It's absolutely gone. And they had to focus on the essentials. And it is in this era that the history of what's known as the synagogue, or as we often say, the synagogue, surfaces. If you have ever read the Hebrew Bible and you sort of look for the synagogue because you're in the gospel accounts and you see the synagogues everywhere and you're like, where did these come from? I don't see these in the laws of Moses. It came during the exile. Because the people said, we need to worship God. We don't have a temple anymore. We need to learn the word of God. We need doctrine. We need to hear the word of God. What are we going to do? And so the people made synagogues, synagogues. There were gatherings. And so they would gather in their communities and these became the teaching centers where the people would come just like this the children would sit around just like this. The parents would come. The singles would gather. They would sit just like this. You could go to Israel. You could go to the Middle East. You could, some of you have gone with me. You've seen the ancient ruins of these synagogues. And they would gather and they would hear this because the temple was gone. Now comes Cyrus. Cyrus says, yeah, whatever. I'm all about assimilation. Come in. Bring your gods. Woo, empire. Hey, hey you guys want to build your temple? Knock yourselves out. Go do that. And the synagogues now have to adapt as they began to move back to the land, as they began to, again, just call the people and focus the people on what is essential, the teaching of God's word. Now, we move on the outline, then from prophecy to proclamation to the people. Quickly, verse 5, look at the text. When the heads of the fathers of the house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Here we have seen the prophecy. We've seen the proclamation of Cyrus. We've seen how God's in control of Cyrus. We see how Cyrus co-ops and uses and he's about his empire and he could care less about God. The prophets say he didn't know God, but God's using him. He can't escape the sovereign hand of God. And here we, we read, the text is telling us more about the people. We read specifically about the men in the text, the fathers. As a preacher, I am tempted to pause, but I'm already out of time to talk about here in the text the importance of the men in leading. Men who call God's people to purity and unity. Men who stand against division and sin. Men who serve and savor sound doctrine and the essentials of the church. Men who overflow in love. Men who are humble and gentle and prayerful and evangelistic. That said, the exegete in me wants to show you about this verse and the people and the men in general, the fathers that are in the text here. Notice the text uh, talks about Judah and Ben. Do you see that? As well, it talks about the priests. Now, next week, I'm going to say more about Judah. I'm going to say more about Ben. I'm going to say more about the priests. I'm going to say more about who the people are. Because if you look at chapter 2, you're going to see a long list of names. And you're going to say, Matt, are you going to preach through that long list of names? Absolutely. You better come back next week and hear about that. So when I set that up next week in my preliminaries, I'll, I'll talk more about what's going on here in verse 5 with regard to Judah, with regard to Ben. With regard to this threefold breakdown of the laity and the priests and the Levites, keep in mind the priests and the Levites. The priests are the descendants of Aaron. The Levites were the servants of the priest. We'll talk about that and its application to the church. But in all of this, we need to be reminded of what the prophet Zerub, of what the, the prophet, excuse me, not Zerubbabel, Zechariah said with regard to the coming back to the land of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Zechariah, again, he's a prophet on top of this history. And he says, Zechariah 4, 6, that it is not by might, it is not by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The people lost everything. It was taken from them by tyrants. And God says, I was in control of it all. Now we move finally to the last point of my outline. That is the point of the price. We've looked at the prophecy. We've looked at the proclamation. We've looked a little bit about the people. We'll talk more next week. And now the price. Draw your eyes back at the text. Let's finish out the chapter, verse 6. All those about them encouraged with them the articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables, aside from all that was given in freewill offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried off from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out to the hand of Mithradeth, the treasurer, and he counted out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, 1,000 of other articles, all articles of gold and silver numbered, 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them all out to the exiles, and they went up to Babylon to Jerusalem. This is the price. I said it costs when you worship. Ezra writes about the sacrifices of the people. They wanted to rebuild their temple. This is going to take money. They, they, they seek the Lord for the blessings of the nations. This is going to cost us as a people if we are to be the servant of the world. Israel was to be the priest of the world. Being a priest is a hard job. Being a minister is a hard job. If you're going to do that, it's going to require great sacrifice. To anticipate, anticipate the seed of David that would come through this land, to, to usher in the kingdom of God that was promised, that's going to take sacrifice. In verses 6 through 11, we see God moving the people for the sacrifice. We read in the text that he stirred their hearts to this end, just as he stirred the heart of Cyrus to go, eh, whatever, go build your temple, do your thing. God was working in the heart of pagan rulers, and he was stirring in the heart of his people to carry them through. When military conquerors conquer lands and people, what do they do? They take their stuff. What do they do? They put their stuff on display, the spoils of war. We see the remnants of this in countries that colonize lands. You know, they'll, they'll have museums with their stuff in it. I think of 2018, the Black Panther movie, and it opens with the scene with Killmonger, played by Michael Jordan. Not Michael Jordan Jordan, but Michael B. Jordan, right? And he's in that London museum, and he's looking for that Wakanda artifact, right? And, and, and he comes to get that Wakanda artifact and take it back to Wakanda, you know, and brings it back to Wakanda. And there's all these wars and whatever. Same, same deal here. Cyrus is like, ah, take out their stuff. The sort of Wakanda artifacts. And Israel gets them and Ezra gets them. And they go, we're going back. We have our stuff. The stuff that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple that's been on display in Cyrus's museum. We're taking that. We're going back. God moved on Cyrus to give. God moved on Cyrus to provide for his people. And then he calls on the people, hey, look, you guys are going to have to sacrifice to make this happen. And we read about the tribes that come forward. Again, next week I'll talk more about them. But the tribes that come forward and say, we're going to do this. The points of my message, what were they? Prophecy, proclamation, people, and price. Moving backwards to conclude then, as we think about the price of the people in this era and the restoration that would take place as they, they, they had lost everything and now they're coming back, the price that it would cost. The, the cost, the challenge to go from there to, to, to get there. I mean, the walk alone, people are going to die just to get there. The walk alone. Not to mention the sacrifice that will take place when they get there. That reminds us, of course, of the great walk that was taken in the heavens to the earth. 
when the eternal Son became a man and dwelled among us. And with that said, if you would grab your communion cups and let us think about the one who has come and the great price that was paid. Actually, can I borrow one because mine has conspicuously left my pocket. Thank you. The price that was paid at the cross of Calvary for our sins proclaimed to you this day is the triune God revealed in Christ. Proclaimed to you this day is the one who took on flesh for us. Proclaimed to you this day is the text of Ezra and we looked at how they were given this great sacrifice to leave this land and go to another. Behold, we worship the one who has left heaven to come to the earth for us, who took a body upon himself. And that body, that price, leads us to that point about the people that we saw in the text. This body makes the people. And so we take this meal, remembering the one who has made us one. As it is, it is a symbol of unity. And in that, it is a call to repentance for those who challenge unity. It is a call of repentance for those who, who make messes in life. And indeed, there's not a person among us who is not guilty of that. We have hurt others. Others need forgiveness. Others need grace. We need God to reconcile. It's easy to look at our nation and see the brokenness and look at the right and look at the left and look at this person and that person and the dumb thing so-and-so is doing and whatever. But at the table we come and we realize we would not have this. We do not deserve this. Behold the one who gave his body for us. Let's eat. He made us a people as we eat. We are made one in his body. Thinking of the people and thinking of the price, we are reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, we read. And so as you open the cup and you have a picture of his blood that is poured out, 2020 was a year of death as we think about pandemics and people dying. As we think about riots and violence and blood that is shed. We think of the great riot of our father Adam that he waged against his creator when he shook that fist in rebellion and the beloved face of the one who gave him life. And we too have shook our fist. We too have been bought with a price. We too have been called now to proclaim the Apostle Paul when he gave this cup to the Corinthians. He said, as you drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes. Cyrus proclaimed, I'm the king, I rule the earth, y'all can go back, here's some stuff, go do it. And we proclaim, Cyrus is dead. Christ is alive. Drink the cup, church. The point that I opened up this message was the point of prophecy. We saw Ezra 1 begin with Jeremiah and Revelation. In that, I admonished us as a church, as we think about the crazy times in which we are living, to be reminded that God holds us in his hand. There's rocket attacks in Iraq this week. The U.S. is retaliating in airstrikes in Syria. We're seeing war and rumor of war. We're reminded of Christ who said that his coming was close as we hear of war and rumor of war. We are reminded that God is faithful. We are reminded that God will fulfill. We are reminded of God's promises. What did he promise to Adam and Eve? That he would send one through the woman who would crush the kingdom of darkness. What did he promise to Abram? That he would bring his people to the land and that they would become a blessing. What did he promise to Moses? His holy law. And there is one who has come to fulfill. What did he promise to David? That he would have a descendant 
Behold, that descendant is the Christ. What did he promise in the new covenant given to the prophets that Christ then invites his church into? The new covenant in my blood that we do in remembrance of him. What did he promise in that? That he will never leave us or forsake us. Others will hurt you. Others will let you down. Others will walk away. Leaders will fail. He will never fail. This series is about how he is faithful to fulfill let us come to him. Let's, let us sing praise to him. Let us celebrate the communion that we have had this day and above all, the communion that we have in him by his spirit. Would you bow your heads and hearts? Let's pray and we'll sing. Oh God, we thank you for the ministry of your word this day. We thank you for your servant Ezra and this mighty revelation given in the sacred text. Lord, we pray that the sacred text would now move from the page into our hearts, move from our hearts into our relationships move from our relationships into your church. Oh God, move from your church into the nation. As people look to leaders and laws, as people look to programs to save things, oh God, we cry out to you because we see you moved a pagan to accomplish your will. And Lord, we must confess that our hearts are equally pagan and wicked. And apart from your work, we would be doomed. And so as we have heard your word, now we pray, Lord, work through your word in us. Gives us soft hearts, we pray. Receive these songs of worship, we pray. For your glory, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.